You are listening to a podcast from Essendon Presbyterian Church in Melbourne, recorded 10 a.m. on July 2, 2023, presented by Rev. Chris Duke. We're now going to read from Romans chapter 8. And we're going to pick it up at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. May the Lord bless to us the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, as we consider these words this morning, we pray that these words may be a great encouragement to each one of us. Lord, that you may bless each one of us as we hear them and as we hear them considered. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the main ideas in Romans 8 is that God will finish what he has started. God will finish what he has started. In Romans 8, it tells us that salvation isn't just about the forgiveness of sins and therefore one's ticket, if you like, to avoid going to hell. But it's actually about a total reconstruction, a transformation. It's about a total transformation that brings about changes in your life and makes all things new. It's even about the restoration of the cosmos. When you read verse 2, salvation means to be set free in chapter 8. In verse 13, it means you will not die, but you will live. In verse 15, it means that you will become a child of God. In verse 13, it, it means that you are now an heir of God. In verse 18, you are glorified with God. In verse 21, you are set free from bondage to corruption and verse 28, 
we find what is the ultimate good. In Romans 8, 1 to 30, you have all these aspects of our salvation and they are found in Christ Jesus. So really, Romans 8 deals with the totality of your salvation, including the restoration of the entire cosmos, the universe, which of course is a, going to be a reversal of the curse. However, from verses 31 to 39, which we've just read, Paul now addresses another problem. In that, that last verse, we read about nakedness, we read about famine, we read about persecution. We, we even read the, the words, the sword. And these are early circumstances that the, that the early Romans, the believers, they faced. These are circumstances that even some believers today are facing daily. And sometimes believers can feel as if God is absent when these circumstances happen. So the question I'm addressing today from verses 31 to 39 is God for me? Because sometimes I might struggle to believe it. Is God for me? Now this is posing the question in the negative. But Paul ends Romans 8 on what salvation is with a song. Those last two verses is actually a song of assurance. In verse 38, Paul commences his song with these words, for I am persuaded. I am persuaded. It means for I am sure, I am certain. And Paul is telling you what he's come to learn, what he's truly, truly certain about. And this is about assurance. And the question you have to answer is, can I, can you sing a song of triumph when you're going through circumstances that are listed in verse 35? Paul says, yes, you can. Yes, the Christian can. So how can the believer, the Christian, remain positive in the middle of trials and trauma? And the point of this passage is really simple. There is one overarching answer to the fact of how you can have assurance in this passage. You can have assurance because God loves you. God loves you. We find this in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The father did not spare his own son for you, which implies that he, he did this because he loves you. Not only the Father, but also the Son in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That is, who shall separate us from the love of the Son? Nobody can. The Son has an inseparable love for you. So how can you be assured? How can you have assurance that you are being saved the answer is simply because God loves you 
and he put it on display. He put it on display. So for a brief sermon, I could end it right here. I could end my sermon right here. And some of you might be applauding inside yourselves if I end here. But I need to say something more. In verses 31 to 34, he says, as he's talking about salvation and the glories of it, what then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to these things? And then he goes on to give us four questions that have some meaning, and they have the same meaning. Who can be against us? And in verse 31 he says, if God is for us, that's one question, who can be against us? And when you read these questions, if God is for us, who can be against us? How is Paul expecting us to answer that question? Nobody. Did you come up with that answer? Nobody can be against us and you are correct. He wants you to say nobody if God is for you, who can be against you? Nobody. But when you read other parts of Paul's writings and when you read other scriptural references, when Paul says if God is for you, who is against you, we might all say nobody. But you could also say everybody. If God is for you, who can be against you? Everybody. And we know for sure that the world and the flesh and the devil are significant enemies. So at the end of this passage, who, who or what is against you? Paul mentions things like the sword. And when he's referring to the sword of his day, He's referring to the state, the Roman Empire, who went about at times executing Christians. Yes, there is all sorts of things against you if God is for you. So in verse 33, we have the third question Paul is asking, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Now, the first and immediate answer is nobody. Nobody will bring a charge against the elect. But from other parts of the Bible, there are some who, who do bring charges against God's people. The Bible teaches us specifically that two persons bring charges against God's people. Well, who are they? Who are they that condemns you? Well, 1 John 3.20 tells us that when we sin, our hearts condemn us. Our own hearts condemn us. So the first person who can condemn you is you. You do. When you sin, your heart can sometimes try to condemn you before God. And this is what we call Subjective condemnation. Now that's word subjective. We don't always understand what it means. It's based on how you feel. That's what subjectiveness is. 
as a Christian, as you're growing in your sanctification in Christ, in your living apart, in your holiness in Christ, you know that there are sometimes, there are, there are places, there are dark places. And these dark places come out in surprising ways. And you don't even know who you are in that moment. There can be thoughts. There can be actions and even words. Subjective condemnation is when your heart, your conscience says to you, how could you? Your sinful heart causes you to feel or think this way. It condemns you so that you can't be one of those Christians when you behave and when you think like that and yet still be in Christ. Well, it's not only the subjective accusation, it's also the subjective condemnation. But there's also objective condemnation, the true source of the condemnation that we might experience in our hearts. We all know the one who condemns us. When you read Job chapter 1, we get a glimpse of the one who condemns us. If you get a chance, read this in your own time. Read the first two chapters of Job. And in Job 1, Satan comes and accuses Job. It's not only the self that condemns, but it's Satan that condemns your heart. The one who comes in Job named Satan. Now Satan, the name Satan literally means the accuser, the adversary. Satan accuses, he condemns. Who then can bring any charge? Who is trying to bring any charge against you? And the answer is the self and Satan. So how do you know, how do you know the difference between when the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin or when you yourself or when Satan is trying to condemn you? And I have a simple answer. The simple answer is that when, you, when you're convicted by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit drives your conviction to repentance. The Holy Spirit drives your conviction to repentance. When Satan, or when you cond condemn yourself, it doesn't drive you to repent. Rather, it leaves you paralysed. It leaves you in your sin. It forces you then to doubt your assurance. It forces you and it endeavours to keep you away from God. And the point of these four questions is, who brings the charges? Who can stand up against you in God's court? And the answer is a lot of things. Satan, the self, the world, circumstances, persons, places, things, and that's all true. The Bible teaches us this, but if you notice the language, the language that I'm using today when I use the word condemn is legal language. It's language that you might find in a courtroom. And in verse 33, 
it says these four or five words. It is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. In the Greek, the word justification or to justify and the verb to condemn, well, they're courtroom opposites. <coughs> to condemn means to pronounce guilty in the court. To justify means to pronounce innocent. So when the question is asked, who can condemn you? We, we know there are so many that are trying, but if God justifies, if God is the judge who speaks the, the pronouncement about you, how can he condemn you? If God the judge is for you judiciously, who can be against you and make a case against you judiciously? And that's the rhetorical question. And the answer is nobody. Nobody can if God's the judge and he is the judge, even though you yourself or others are trying to be your judge, not even you can condemn yourself. So why then is your assurance so sure? Well, there are two things in this text that give us more about it. The first is found in verse 32. And what a great verse it is. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, in the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, or Septuagint, a very similar phrase occurs in Genesis 22, verse 16. In the story of Abraham that we had read earlier, when Abraham was called to sacrifice his son Isaac, Genesis 22:16, and God is speaking here, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you. God called Abraham to make a sacrifice of his only son on the mountain. So Abraham went to the mountain. He put the wood on the back of his only son and he marched his son up to uh, the mountain which is called Moriah, a hill that is found in the city of Jerusalem today. He took his knife and he went to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And then the angel of the Lord came and said, stop. Of course, there was a substitute, a ram in the thicket. Now, what's going on here? In Jewish eyes, Abraham is everything. Any Jew reading Paul's letter will know that Abraham's faith and Abraham's love for God were exhibited in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22 is the pinnacle of what it means to be faithful and to love God. In the moment that Abraham took the knife is the greatest moment of love in Jewish eyes. And the New Testament reinforces this when you read Hebrews chapter 11. Now Paul is alluding to this when he says, the father did not spare his own son. Why? 
What is he saying? If you think that Abraham's willingness to give up his own son for God is the greatest act of love you've ever seen, then you haven't seen anything yet. Abraham was willing, but Abraham didn't have to spare his own son. He never had to actually go through with it. God spared Abraham's son for him. Why? Because Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22 are a shadow of a greater reality. They were a drama of a better father and son who had to give his only son. Now Abraham loved God in a way that none of us will ever have to go through. Well, I pray we never have to go through. The call to give up your only son. He went to take him. He went to sacrifice him. And he showed incredible love and faith. But he did it for God. God the creator. God the giver of gifts. The one who rescued him out of his paganism. The one who had given him a land of plenty. The one who gave him the son in the first place in his old age. So why is Paul alluding to this? This is what Paul is saying. The creator of the world did not spare his only son for those who, as Isaiah 50 put it, spit in his face after he created them. We read this at the beginning. He did what Abraham never had to do. He did it for creatures, that is for people who did not love him. So the point is, how can you be sure that God is actually saving you? And Paul is saying that you need to look at the cross. You need to look at the cross and see the radical, see the enormous love of God that it can't be explained because it's immeasurable. It's a love that goes beyond anything humanity has ever seen, well beyond the faith of Abraham. And for the Jewish reader, God is so much greater than even our father Abraham. You can be so sure today because of God's great love. And finally, there's one more thing. He did not spare his own son for you, so clearly he loves you. But is he saving you? That's the question. Where's the assurance that salvation will be brought to completion, that he will bring us to the restoration of the cosmos, as Roman 8 speaks about. Now, Paul is working now here with Isaiah chapters uh, 50, verses 8 to 9. Isaiah 50, of course, is one of the great servant songs. And we continue those songs into Isaiah 53. He asks these questions, and I've pulled these two questions out from verse 8. Who will contend with me? Who is my adversary? Who can declare me guilty? These questions the servant is asking in Isaiah 50 are very similar to Paul's legal question in Romans 8. Now, for 2,000 years, Christians have read the servant's songs of Isaiah as being prophecies about the true servant himself. Jesus Christ. 
that the Son of God is the one who is speaking here, of course, is the servant song about himself. What is the Son of God before he ever came in flesh to this world saying about himself? Well, it's not up there. Uh, yes, it is. Isaiah 50 verse 6, he says, I gave back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. We know he gave himself up to the humiliation and to, to condemnation. He was condemned by the Pharisees. He was spit upon by the Roman soldiers. He was condemned by the scribes and the Roman government. He was condemned by the people. And Peter says in the, in the crowd when we read Acts 2, he actually states to the crowd who's listening to him, you crucified him. And that you is in the plural. And it's referring to people who weren't even there, meaning all of you. For all of time, crucified him, you condemned him. And he was even condemned by God at the cross. But we read these rhetorical questions of Isaiah 50. He was condemned, the servant says in Isaiah, who is he who will condemn me? Who can stand up as my adversary in the courtroom and declare me guilty? It's a rhetorical question there because just like in Romans 8, yes, they will spit upon my face, but who can condemn me? You're meant to answer here, nobody can. Nobody can. Yes, he was condemned, but how? Well, he was condemned as our representative. He who knew no sin became sin for us. What does it mean that he became sin? He didn't actually become sin. He became sin by representation. When he was condemned, he was only condemned by representation. So when he says, who can stand up against me? Who can be my adversary? This is what he's saying. When I stand up in, in the court of God's justice, I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. I was condemned at the cross, but I'm justified. I'm innocent. He was so justified in all of his works that sin could not hold him down, that we condemned him, but then he stood up. So the accusations couldn't stick. They cannot stick. How can you be so sure that God is saving you today? The reason you can be so sure that God is finishing his work of salvation is because of verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And Paul is using these questions that were only true of the servant in Isaiah chapter 50. Who can stand up and condemn the servant? Nobody. Who can stand up and call you guilty? Nobody. Why? Not because you're actually innocent, but because you are with him. Because you are with him and he is for you. He 
is for you. The Lord Jesus Christ is for you. This is what salvation means. Salvation is when God identifies you in every way with the suffering servant himself. He looks at you and then he looks at the servant. He sees the servant. So the questions of Isaiah 50 are now your questions. The questions of Roman 8 are your questions because they were first his questions. You can only be found guilty to the extent that he is guilty, but he's not guilty. So you can't be either. And that's how we can be sure. That's how we can have assurance today. How do you know? How can you have assurance? Well, faith has to look back to the cross. Faith has to look back to the cross. And when it looks at the cross, it sees that God's pronouncement to you is that he will not leave you in your sins. Not the sins that you've committed in the past, nor the sins that you will commit in the future. The cross is God's pronouncement that you are forgiven in the past, present and future and you will not be a prisoner of the things that you have done, that you are no longer a prisoner of your own heart. So who can charge you? Who can condemn you? Who can stop this? And the answer is some may try, but nobody can. Some may try, but nobody can. So in closing, Paul lists circumstances that are incredibly difficult. They're listed for a reason. Because it's difficult for us to just simply enjoy this reality and this assurance. You see, we have circumstances in our life and we struggle deep down in the subconscious of our hearts. Am I experiencing God? I don't feel like I'm growing. I don't feel myself to be saved all the time. I'm struggling with the accusation. And as I'm experiencing hard circumstances at various times, does God love me? And that's what Paul says and does in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And the reason he asked that question is because he lists all sorts of things that might make you feel like you're separated from the love of Christ. The Christian faith doesn't promise that life gets easier when you come to faith. Actually, the Christian faith promises that you're called to put on the cross, to put on the sufferings of Christ in some way yourself. The Christian faith doesn't offer anything easy except your justification. Well, easy for you. It was hard for Christ. But the call of Christianity is the call to take up your cross and follow Christ. So your circumstances in life may be hard because you believe 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're not to feel guilty about uh, not undergoing state-sponsored execution or anything like it. I don't want you to get any of those guilt complexes or anything maybe that Paul lists here. But he's saying that faith in Christ might cost you, that the cost is never so much that it will ever separate you from Christ. Rather, it means assurance. It means that God is doing a good work in you and he's growing you up. He's growing you up. And so it, here it is in verse 34. If Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, Christ died. Faith looks back to the cross. But there's more. There's more. Paul reminds us, and furthermore, is also risen. Faith must look at the resurrection for assurance in this world. And here's what it must see. The resurrection is God's pronouncement to you that in this fallen, chaotic world, that your imprisonment to this body of death will not be forever. It will not be forever. So faith looks for assurance in the midst of hard circumstances. For nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when you're having doubts about your faith, about your assurance, I want you to come back to Romans 8 and read this passage. Amen. Let us pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we, we pray that if there is anyone here who has, had, has any doubt about the promises of your word, about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, about their own assurance, about whether they're saved or not, I pray that you would come into their hearts and speak to their hearts ever so more. Encourage each one of us to believe your word. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's uh, respond to God's word in the giving of our tithes and offerings and also in... in More messages of hope at Essendon Presbyterian Church.org.au or wherever you get your podcasts from.